All right, welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest is Steve Bennett. Steve, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, Steve is a renowned angel investor. He's also a startup CFO. We've been friends for a long, long time. And I want to have him on the podcast because I get so many questions about what what do angel investors look for? How do they operate? How do they write checks? So I figured I'd have Steve on so he could answer all these questions. Scott, great to be here. So I guess one other thing that Scott didn't mention in my bio, in addition to being an angel investor and part-time CFO, I'm also a professor. I teach entrepreneurship at San Jose State, and Scott's been kind enough to join us both in person and virtually several times. So when I wear my angel investor hat, um, and it's often hard to differentiate in terms of um, you know what I'm doing on any particular day, uh, you know there's no typical angel investor. I think you know probably even less so than a typical uh, VC. So every angel is looking for something a little bit different, and the whole angel investing market has changed quite a bit over the last five, ten, fifteen years. So. Personally, what I look for is I'm looking for an entrepreneur that you know that that I believe has a great idea, and that's not even necessarily the most important, but really passionate about what they're doing. There's a you know some reason that's driving them to to do what they're doing, and I think they're not going to quit. That they're there to win. That they can recruit a team around what they're building, and that there is a viable business model that can be put together. So those are you know at a high level. And then if we drill down a little bit, since I'm an angel investor and I'm not investing a lot of money, there may be investors down the road that need to come in, whether they're VCs, whether they're corporate investors. So I want to make sure that there's two paths that the company can go on, that they are not just structured, that the only way they can succeed is to go out and raise a big venture round, because then I'm taking on a ton of financing risk and you know, likely not going to be rewarded for that. But as long as there's an option where they can build a company organically or there may be a path to profitability or exit um, as one path, and then another path is raising a lot of money and scaling, but most companies don't fit into that natural venture model. Yeah. So first of all, I can't believe I forgot about the professor aspect. So your Twitter handle is Professor VC, which I love. Yeah, so I started, um, I, I felt like, I think I titled my blog, which I didn't start until 2008, uh, as ProfessorVC.com, and I just came up with it. The blog was available on Blogger, the URL was available, <laughs> and it kind of tied together what I teach, because I, I teach a lot of venture capital along with the entrepreneurship, and you know, I thought it would, and I like long-form writing. Uh, this is actually the first podcast I've done I do I do a lot of panels both moderating and and speaking so I, I I do like to write and I think the one of the first blog posts I wrote was one of these um, you know how it got away stories and and people love to talk oh, about yeah. the investments that they missed out on so I had Jeff Fleur who was the founder of, of StubHub came to talk at my entrepreneurial finance class and he went through the whole story and how they ultimately uh, sold to eBay for somewhere between three and four hundred million and arguably they may have even sold a little bit early but I think as he said that day better to sell too early than too late yeah. so I think I had four entrepreneurial lessons that was um, that was one of the four blog posts and you know I, I I like to write when I have when I have the time but that was a company that I had met I think 2001. So Jeff and his co-founder 
were just finishing up their first year at Stanford Business School. They had this idea for this software solution where they could sell tickets for uh, for teams, major leagues. So I think they were starting with uh, Major League Baseball, maybe football, and it was a company called Liquid Seats. And they were really deciding whether there was something here and they should go back for a second year of business school or try and raise money. And I really liked what they were doing because it's not an easy thing to build. There are a lot of regulatory challenges, but um, they really seemed like guys that could do this. I was at a venture firm at the time, so I wasn't actually doing a lot of angel investing on my own. I brought them, this was, I think it was 2001, um, brought into my firm Outlook Ventures, and uh, they were, you know, my partners were just kind of down on anything that touched a consumer at that point. So uh, it didn't fly. I didn't invest. Uh, Jeff ended up dropping out of Stanford, building the company. His co-founder went back for a second year of business school and then joined StubHub later. And I'm sure that second year ended up being quite expensive <laughs> uh, in terms of equity that may have not have been investing or that he left on the table. Do you, have you ever met Jen, um, oh my God, uh, Jen Field from uh, Tripping? Because she was an early employee at StubHub. And basically, I've, I've, no, I've heard the StubHub story from her. Um, she, she helped run marketing early on. No, Jenny Fielding, who's at Techstars now. But oh, I, think, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's, oh, you may have introduced me to her. Oh, I think yeah. it's, part of, it's part of our e-lab that we do yeah. where the students all do an internship and a startup, yeah. um, that class. I think, I think they did participate yeah. in the class. But she talks about yeah. StubHub all the time. Okay. Like she learned. Okay. Okay. the basics of like how to get a marketplace going and now she's doing a tripping but like okay. that was, that company spawned a ton of other startups too like they yeah were just yeah really yeah i mean i could tell you the lyft story but then i'd probably just cry so <laughs> Wait, tell, may... you told me that tell the lyft story please oh gosh okay so you had a great line the, when the, you finished the, it. the other one the, the other one that got away was um a company called zimride so again another example very young entrepreneur was in santa barbara had this you know just starting to build this company and basically it was just replacing the ride board on college campuses so for people as old as uh, scott and i you'd remember kind of going up to this bulletin board there'd be staples and staples and staples uh you know on this board things over and somebody would say yeah i'm going um i'm going home to la over thanksgiving i have three seats you know rip off the little thing at the end of the the flyer and give them a call so um, yeah, there were some initiatives on campus, you know, probably 10 years ago saying, well, let's replace this. We can do this better. Let's have, you know, I think there were some incentives for probably some, you know, some green carpooling and others that wasn't just, um, you know, going home over break, but actually commuting on a daily basis. So Logan had actually convinced, I think, five or 10 universities at this point to pay him $10,000 a year to put this ride board online. It was using Facebook. So you knew that you were getting a ride with a friend or a friend of a friend or a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, And he was in Santa Barbara and then decided if he was going to build this, he was going to come to Silicon Valley. So I forgot who introduced me um, originally, but I think I was the first person that he met with when he came up to when he came up to the valley and you know some of the things that i liked about what he was doing one you know very passionate about the idea that they had the beginnings of a you know business model clearly that wasn't going to be the long-term business model but it was a good place to start he had some experience in the area so not only did he you know kind of build this thing so he could go see his his girlfriend who i think was in la or san diego 
but he also had experience on the Santa Barbara Transportation Board as a student, and it was doing things around transportation and busing. And I think he had actually really came up with this idea when he was traveling through uh, Zimbabwe. And I oh think that God. was actually the – I think that was actually – I don't know what their, you know, kind of startup myth is today, but I remember if you is asked it? Logan at the time, it was from Zimbabwe. And then he ultimately ended up uh, partnering with a guy at Cornell who had a similar idea, and his name was John Zimmer. So, uh, you know, people think, okay, Zimride for yeah. Zimmer and, you know, Logan for um, for Zimbabwe. But so I, I spent a bunch of time just, you know, really liked him, informal advisor, um, you know, didn't ask for any equity. I, you know, generally, you know, just kind of like to help people out, really liked them. They were moving around little apartments and offices in Palo Alto, and then... Uh, you know, when they got to the point where I, you know, we kind of agreed that a little financing would be helpful, I pulled in a, a, another guy from my angel group, uh, Santel Angels, and we ended up putting together a, a term sheet for, again, what the time was Zimride, and I think it was somewhere around, I don't know, somewhere in million-dollar pre-money valuation. I think we were going to put in two hundred fifty or 300000 and wisely you know i think logan thought about it and we went back and forth a little bit and then at the same time he got a facebook grant that i think also gave a hundred or two hundred thousand which was enough for what they really needed at the time and then when they did raise their angel round i don't know if i wasn't i wasn't around right then or you know there were some people that came in maybe had um uh, sharper elbows than me, but there wasn't uh, didn't end up investing in that round. They ended up, you know, rebranding and repositioning the company as Lyft. They sold off the Zimride piece, and uh, you know, certainly the company is going great guns. And you know, Logan's a great guy, so yeah. it's you know, it's kind of the the Silicon Valley thing that you know maybe I don't end up financially winning on that one, but um, I think there were some karma points. Yeah, and I, you you also said to me, we told me that the first time you're like, I think I'd be on a beach right now if, if that deal would have closed. Like you'd be uh, uh, potentially, <laughs> you know, I'm not that far, not that far from the beach. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, so you said, so those are awesome stories. So you said a couple things when you're starting up looking for that passion for people to kind of fight through because those those stories are all kind of like they didn't have the answer right away i think yeah. a lot of people look when they're when they they think of angel investing they have this expectation where the company has to have everything figured out but like you and i know they're usually figuring it out as they go right oh they're figuring it out until you know until the day the company either succeeds wildly and you know kind of sells and is integrated somewhere else or you know fails miserably but you know nobody ever knows all the answers i mean startups are full of ambiguity and that's one thing that i tell my students all the time that if you're not comfortable with ambiguity you can't deal with it then you know don't be an entrepreneur you'll just drive yourself crazy you'll bang your head into walls you're going to want to put everything into a box and it just doesn't doesn't work like that we had well, another example where we're sitting right here today in the yeah. new company where I just took CFO role and you guys at Cruise are going to come in and, and help us. Zenio Systems, the CEO of Zenio, Reza Raji, I've worked with on two other companies. We've known each other now for over a dozen years. And the first company that I worked with him on, iControl Networks, was, as you were saying, they had he had been at um, Echelon, which was an industrial automation company, had gone public, and he had this idea for a consumer service that would be distributed through service providers to provide home automation, security, other you know what we're calling now smart home combined with 
IoT. And this, he, so he had pitched this wall at Echelon, so I guess you would call that intrapreneurship. I don't know if people use that term about doing, um, <laughs> you know, being an entrepreneur within, a, within an enterprise, within a public company. And I think it got to the point where Echelon wasn't quite at a scale. They had just gone public. They couldn't really experiment with something that was kind of far off, a little mm-hmm. bit far off from what they were doing. So Reza got the CEO's blessing to go off and start this new company, which became iControl Networks, and uh, put together a team of three, four, five people. I came in as an early investor and CFO, and it took a you know it took us a long time. We had a number of near death experiences, and I ended up being the CFO for the first four to five years of the company. Reza stayed for about eight years, brought in a you know what they call a professional CEO, and the company is just in process of being acquired now. But that's a company we put together the initial business plan where we thought we would need less than ten million dollars and would be um, you know at a scale by. I think 2008 or 2009, probably where the company hit in 2015, yeah. or you know maybe maybe this year. And the interesting thing about that one is, um, you know, we experimented in a number of ways, but the ultimate business model and selling through service providers was what we had anticipated at the beginning. It was just really hard and took a really long time. So the product was branded as. ADT Pulse and Comcast Xfinity Security and Time Warner as a solution. So um, that was actually an interesting one in that, you know, it just took a very long time to develop and it became challenging at a number of times to raise capital and was much more capital intensive than we thought it was going to be. But I've been with other companies where, uh, you know, the business model, you know, definitely changes quite a bit yeah on that one that's a really good story because i actually looked at that one we joke i think i submitted three different term sheets to them when i was at lighthouse like oh every year it'd be like i control came back again but a lot of that was actually because you were working through comcast and working through adp like yeah. now having gone through that we ultimately did get the distribution which made that company super valuable like when you're doing your angel investing do you look for enterprise companies do you look for consumer now like you've seen it kind of both ways like do you have a preference so I, you know, from an investing standpoint, I look at both. And I'd say now probably doing a little more that have a hardware element. Traditionally, it was software, mobile, internet, and mm-hmm. would look at both enterprise and consumer. I think, you know, markets change, interests change among investors. But, uh, you know, I'm really looking for, you know, that entrepreneur that I can believe can build a scalable business. So, um, if that's in an enterprise space, great. I understand you know, how the dynamics work there. If it's a consumer, that's going to be much, much more difficult to predict early yeah. on whether a company is going to be successful. So I'll make some bets there, but probably have more and quicker failures in the consumer space and the enterprise. But, of course, if they're successful, the win can be a lot bigger, yeah. too. So, you know, the whole, you know, kind of software's... Eating the world, Mark Andreessen, you know, you're, you're, you know, if you invest over, you know, kind of a 20 year period in enterprise software, you're going to do pretty well. Yeah, I totally um, agree. So I think a lot of people kind of stick to specifically what they know, whether that's enterprise, whether that's life sciences, whether that's consumer. I like to dabble it and, you know, learn and meet a lot of different people yeah. as I, as I go through the process. It's, it's interesting you talk about looking for hardware companies too, because traditionally that was like something that angel investors, or even VCs didn't really like to invest in. 
However, we're seeing a lot of our clients are actually hardware companies because it gives you this, it, it gives you a real barrier to entry now. And like combining hardware with software, the companies are usually doing both. Yeah, yeah. And like I think really the value works. in most of these hardware plays, again, like iControl, is on the software side. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest challenge with hardware is takes a lot, you know, it takes a lot longer and it's much harder to iterate. So yeah. if you're looking at being a startup, running lean, experimenting, you know, anytime you take a, you know, a false step in a hardware business, it's probably going to set you back more than if you did that in yeah. a software business. But I agree. I think that there are, you know, many, many, we're actually doing a, a case study in my class tomorrow on Bolt, which is a hardware oh. accelerator. And they work with some very interesting companies. And Ben Einstein, who's one of the principals there has written some some interesting blog posts too, and I think one of them, and I forgot exactly what it uh, what its main thesis was, but basically said, you know, stop saying hardware is hard, right? Because that's kind of the the knee jerk reaction. Yeah. But oh, yeah. you know, it's not one. It's probably not that hard. I mean, it is for me. I'm not an engineer, but um, <laughs> nor, you know, neither, nor am I. neither are you. But yeah. you know, we just think everything's easy. If we can think about it, you should be able to build yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's why they hate us. Um, <laughs> so you know, I, I think there is a you know for you know, angel investors looking to invest in, you know, hardware startups for entrepreneurs. Uh, as you said, Scott, it certainly is a way to differentiate a little bit, maybe get a little bit of, you know, lock in with a product. It can be more fun for, um, you know, kind of hiring designers and others to come out with a, you know, kind of nice, cool product that yeah. you can you can touch and see. And, you know, maybe yeah. it's a little bit easier to explain to explain to your grandmother what you do. <laughs> when you that, that's definitely true. When you look at a start, when you're investing in a startup, I always tell our companies to think in terms of milestones. Like what what kind of generally speaking, what milestones are you looking the looking for the startup to hit on your money? Like the angel syndicates money. You know, I think it varies, you know, company to company. I mean, I think so. The first thing, as you said, Scott, you definitely want to have an idea of what milestone that you want to hit when you come in. So I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the pitch decks I see that are, you know, coming to me with a proposal to invest, they're... You know their last slide, which says, "Okay, we're raising seven hundred fifty thousand, or we're raising a million and a half, and this is what it's going to get us." You know, again, ninety percent of the time, it says twelve months runway, eighteen months runway, twenty-four months runway, and that is the last thing that I want to see. So, yes, I want to make sure that you're going to have enough money to, yeah. you know, kind of get out there, and you're not going to need to need to go out and raise money in six months. But you don't lead with that. So you lead with, okay, we're going to be able to build version one of the product. You know, our market is, you know, we're going after big box retailers. We know we can get two pilots done, you know, in the six months. We've already got a pipeline of X. Yeah. So these are what our milestones are going to be. And then, okay, so that's where you're going to be. In this case, you probably need to raise more capital. So, um, you know, let's think what you think you're going to have in nine to 12 months. Is that going to be something that you can raise capital on? And if yes, great, let's put in a cushion, make sure that you have that 18 months runway. If no, well, let's rethink this because maybe there's a different business angle that we can take that's going to require less capital or something that you can do on. And again, it's not just my money. I'm a small investor. I invest personally, maybe 10 to $50,000. And then collectively in a group, if I'm with my angel group, we might invest 250. And then I'm investing outside with other angels. You know, again, it, it could be 
you know anywhere from uh, you know 250k full round up to a million to two million. Yeah, but that's really good advice. Like, look at the milestones that that you know getting two pilots and actually proving out whatever you're doing, and then adding some additional cushion to that because no one ever hits yep. their milestones on time. And then do you look at it from like, cause I was, I coached them and say like, look at it from a series a investor like that. That person needs to take it to their partnership and want to invest 5 million or $10 million into that company. Or are you seeing companies raise kind of that second bite of the apple from angel, angel investors? Before well, it they could be, it could a? be either. So I think we're certainly seeing a lot more now where there's a, seed one and a seed two or a seed prime you know versus going straight to the series a so there's and sometimes that's a fallback position other times it's you know this is what we could raise now if we could have raised the full seed great but um you know so maybe it's you know half of those milestones we were talking about before which can get either current investors to put in a little bit more and bring in a few mm-hmm. value added mm-hmm. you know it might be a micro fund or you know what people were calling a few years ago a super angel so you might start with a little bit of a smaller angel round and then tack on what i don't really like is i've seen entrepreneurs that just kind of think that the financing strategy now because people have gotten comfortable with convertible debt as we'll just do a convertible debt round now we'll do another one in a year another one a year after that and a year after that and at some point pretty quickly you got to think about you know how this is going to work what the cap table is going to look like and how you're actually going to convert this and if things don't go well you may not have some of those control provisions that you would have in a series a but you're yeah, you're basically in a position where you're not going to be able to raise any money, yeah. and now you have to look to try and sell. So yeah. you always have to be thinking ahead strategically what your financing strategy is going to be, just as you're thinking ahead about what your product strategy is and what your sales strategy is going to yeah. be. So they all need to be tied together. Yeah, that makes that's good advice. You talked about you invest out of uh, Sandhill Angels. Like maybe talk a little about that group, and then aren't aren't you doing an Angelus syndicate where you, you, yeah, you have so like a I've, cool Angelus syndicate? I, well, I've. That's something that I'm in process of learning about. But, you know, AngelList, I was, I think I was one of the, you know, probably the first maybe 20 or 50 angels that were on the angel list when it was actually an email list and an email that <laughs> yeah. Naval would send around with, with interesting deals to, to yeah. look at. And then it's obviously involved since then. And I, I did finally put a syndicate together about three or four months ago, but I haven't put a, uh, a company through as I'm learning how the syndicate process works. And there's been a number of changes in terms of um, Angelist publicizing deals. They have their own funds and, um, you know, what the right kind of process for yeah. taking a company through there mm-hmm. is. So I think it's a great platform and I'm definitely planning on using it. I'm also been a member of Sandhill Angels for about 11 years. So this is a one of the earlier angel groups, which is a model that's uh, proliferated around the country. The Band of Angels here was probably mm-hmm. the first such group that's been around for probably a little over 20 years now. And with them, it was primarily retired tech executives that were looking to basically socialize with each other and yeah. invest in companies and kind of a dinner club. And then with the Sandhill Angels, we came together, still people out of the tech industry, but um, most of us were still working. So, you know, kind of mid-career, but wanted to be able to mentor and invest collectively. One, you know, way anybody who's gone into angel investing on their own has made some pretty stupid decisions early on. So <laughs> this was a way to protect yourself from your own stupidity a little bit yeah. and, and have that collective wisdom and intelligence. So 
having the ability to invest with a group of people to uh, be able to invest more capital into a particular company. And then from an investor standpoint, um, having probably a little more control and being considered a major investor from the entrepreneur standpoint, being able to tap the collective networks and expertise of the people in the yeah. group. So on, on paper, it works great. In practice, there's a lot of challenges. Um, you know, anytime you've got an entrepreneur that's raising money from a group in terms of transparency, yeah. where are you at? Um, you know, is this financing actually going to close? And I think we're better than most in that we invest as an entity. So the entrepreneur typically is dealing with one or two people at mm. Sandhill Angels versus a number of angel groups that call themselves angel groups but are really a collection of individuals and you have to close on each individual separately and you have each individual then as an investor on your cap table or worse yet there are some angel groups that are charging entrepreneurs to come in and present and you definitely want to be very very careful as an entrepreneur of anyone who's trying to take money from you particularly if they call themselves an investor because the investor is supposed to be the ones with the capital you're the poor starving entrepreneur Uh, so, you know, there, there's certainly success stories from companies that have probably gone down that road and, and paid to pitch, but I'd say they're far and few between, and there's enough, um, you know, very above board investors that you shouldn't need to do yeah. that. You also talked about like your common points earlier. Like I actually really believe in that. Like I'm like you, like sometimes people offer me equity to help out or make intros and I'm always like, you know, I'll just make, I believe in what you're doing. I think it's a good idea. That's why I want to make the intros. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. So I've certainly gotten involved with companies and advisors and, and had an equity grant. And again, it's, it's usually a, you know, kind of a nice thank you, but it's also a way that, you know, I'm committing to the entrepreneur to really help them. So it's not just, okay, sure. You can send me an email. If I think of what you're doing, I'll try and connect you, but I'm actually going to, um, you know, spend some time and some mental energy because there's only a certain number of things that you can keep in your head the whole time. And maybe you have a list, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that, and I, I haven't been seeing this quite as much, but there was a, a time there where, you know, I think entrepreneurs were being given some advice, you know, you want to get, you know, as many people as you're on your advisory board as you can, you want some big names. And um, the problem is, and having, I've had a couple of accelerators, I've been with the venture firm, I've been with the angel group, I've been on my own, is that the first thing you do when you look at a list of advisors is you start asking probing questions. So what are they actually doing? Why are you giving them this equity? Wait yeah. a second. I know they- How inve- active are they? I, yeah, I know, I know, I've seen them in other deals where I've been involved in investing. So are they, have they made an investment in your, well, they haven't yet, but I think they might. Then that's, that's a big red flag that goes up. Okay. So you've got somebody that's on your advisory board that you're giving some equity to who's an investor who has decided not to invest in your company at this time. Uh, you know, I think that's actually working against you. So, you know, definitely think about that one. Yeah. How much, how much of your work and is your startup CFO work? Do you do kind of equity and cash or how does it work? Yeah. So I do, um, again, I think the flexibility that I've had is basically doing this CFO work on my own is that unlike, you know, you, where you have, um, you know, a little larger organization, you have employees. I had actually scaled scaled up Bodega Partners at one point to have half a dozen people and decided I didn't want to, you know, go that road with a services firm. So, I like taking equity and figure out it, you know, kind of once we get done playing this this full game, I'm going to be well ahead yeah. having taken equity. But I don't take um, – I do take a mix of equity and cash. Yeah. Again, um, you know, startups are used to kind of paying something. But certainly that's a way to – 
reduce the burn for the startup. You know, when I started doing this, the you know the value proposition was you don't need a full time CFO on your team for a long time, but you do need some of the strategic finance, totally. you know, skills that can be brought to the table. But again, you don't need that anywhere close to a full time. So I can be a member of the team. Personally, I like playing this role because. Um, I like keeping the operating hat on, and this is a way that I can do it, and I can do it with one or two companies at a time. Typically, yeah. I won't do more because I'm also doing the, the teaching and the advising and the investing. Yeah, I don't know um, how you have enough time in the day. It, it yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know either. It varies, and um, I, I'm kind of a adult, um, you know, ADHD kind of guy. So it helps me to be doing something different every day. Because yeah. when I first started doing this, there were a couple times where I was with companies that seemed like they were doing really well or hot, and the opportunity was there to come in as a full time. And I, um, I gave it strong consideration once or twice, and ultimately said no. And since then, I haven't considered it at all because I've realized one, it just doesn't fit me to the CFO role as a company grows becomes a lot more process, which is not totally. something that yeah. um, that I like and that I'm particularly good at. And, you know, again, I like this, you know, very early stage from five to, you know, 25, 30, maybe 50 employees where you're figuring out the business, you're whiteboarding, the team's small, you, you celebrate little victories, and then you have the roller coaster ups and downs and you know, as you said, Scott, there's, uh, um, you know, we only have, you know, one life here. So, yeah, I mean, maybe the uh, for those that believe in, in, in life after death, maybe those karma points carry over. But if not, I think they'll, um, you know, they'll pay out at some point in my lifetime. Yeah. Well, they also the karma points do work because people know you're a good guy. They like working with you. So they refer you around or refer you to the next hot angel. Yeah, I think, at, you know, you know I think you had kind of started <clears throat> down that path maybe before we started talking in terms of deal flow and you know at this point it's pretty much all referral and yeah. you know i wish i could have time to you know even talk to all the entrepreneurs that um that i'm referred to and i try if it comes from somebody that i that i know well at least try and have an initial dialogue but it's just not possible some yeah. cases i just don't have time and i'm overloaded other times i just can't get excited about you know what they're doing so it's not necessarily the entrepreneur but you know i don't want to kind of start a meeting you know thinking okay this is something I'm definitely not interested in. Convince me that there's a chance I might be interested, yeah. but I don't think that's the best use of, of either of our time. Yeah, their time yeah. either. Um, and I also do. I also mentor at a number of accelerators. So at 500 startups, I've done TechStars, Founder Institute, where I think anybody who signs up. So I'll come in and meet with um, you know six, eight, ten, you know different entrepreneurs or teams, and I always like doing that, and yeah. I like to spend time with my current and former students, you know, talking through what they're working on. Yeah. You, I mean, I, I like doing that too. And I think that's why we get along so well. Um, well, let's wrap this up a little bit. Maybe talk about just kind of, is there, you talked about your criteria, like the passion and something that could be a big business that could maybe be not just huge venture funded, but also be a cash flow positive business someday. Maybe just kind of, are those your requirements for looking at a deal? And are there any sectors you're specifically looking for these days? So, I, I, no, I don't think that's everything that I'm looking for, yeah. but that's, I actually have a, a cheat sheet that I oh, always carry smart. around and kind of, kind, of, kind of goes through, yeah. uh, you know, the different entrepreneurial characteristics, you know, looks at market, yeah. um, looks at business model, looks a little bit at, at, at finance and, and HR and culture, and then just some, you know, kind of intangibles that are, might or might not be 
be interested in. So, but I do have a, a mental checklist, but that can change. But you know, typically, I was trying to think because I know you've you've introduced me to a number of people yeah. over the years, and I think a, a few you did, a few you did merch bar right merch bar yeah. right yeah. at yeah. Aiden. So that was actually one of the few entrepreneurs I think I only actually met face to face with him once before I invested. Um, so there must have been something about him, and I, I think with with Ed, I mean, I you know they've you know he's kind of pivoted a little bit. It's taking a little while to you know kind of build this business, but it's been very strategic about the relationships and the deals yeah. that he's been doing. That um, I think that was probably something kind of the domain you know expertise. So that's something else. Definitely want somebody with not just the you know, the passion and the reason for what they're doing. But, you know, somebody on the team has to have some some domain. That's a great point. Um, so it was interesting. So I had, uh, I mentioned a couple accelerators. The last accelerator that I was involved with um, was in the fintech and cryptocurrency oh, area. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Crosscoin Ventures. So we did, I think we did about eight investments in 2014 wow. and early 2015 into uh, kind of blockchain related startups, but we were working with a different technology. So we had partnered with a company, Ripple Labs, oh, to right. build yeah. build this yeah. accelerator. So that was one time where I was very focused on a, a particular um, industry. So I like I like IoT a lot. So yeah. I've been looking at a number of, of a number of opportunities there, fintech. But it really, you know, I don't like to close out on anything that I might you know find interesting because I'm really you know more about you know the entrepreneur and I can often tell by whoever's introducing me to that entrepreneur how excited they are how many entrepreneurs they've introduced me over time you know what the um, you know what the end result was so there's there's certain people that I will you know if they ever introduce me to somebody I'll make sure I take a face-to-face yeah, meeting yeah. there's others where I'm going to make sure I can at least you know kind of be in contact with that entrepreneur and then there's others where I'll probably respond to the email uh, you know referral but with a you know polite yeah. thanks but no thanks and then there's um you know a lot of you know unsolicited uh you know linkedin spam yeah. other other stuff but again you only have so much time and, and i want to make sure that i can add value too yeah. so if it's an area where i don't yeah, i don't know anything have any expertise and um yeah i may want to you know i may want to get involved if i can but you know it may not be the best um, you know, angel for the entrepreneur. Yeah. Again, if you're taking smaller amounts of money from people, you want to make sure, uh, I mean, one, all money's green, right? So you're, you're trying to bring cash in, so you want to yeah. do that. But also, if you could pick and choose your investors, then figure out who's going to be able to who's going to be able to help you, who's going to spend time, who's going to open up their network yeah, for you. That's really good advice. Um, can you tell everyone where to find you? I know Professor VC on sure, Twitter. Sure, you can find me at um, on Twitter at Professor VC. I think Twitter's still around, isn't it? I still use it. Yeah, I still love I, it. I, I do too, but I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about you know where it's going. I was actually listening to a very entertaining uh, interview with Gary V oh, yeah, uh, yeah. and Larry King um, that somehow came across my Facebook page and uh, – yeah, he was bemoaning a little bit that, you know, he's got a million two Twitter followers and, uh, you know, now the can't, platform can't, might be going away. And yeah. then, of course, Larry King said, I think I have three million. Larry King's actually funny on. Yeah, on, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. it's pretty funny. So, yeah, at Professor VC on Twitter, uh, the blogs at ProfessorVC.com. 
Uh, you can find me at uh, San Jose State teaching my courses, and I've got a, a panel discussion that I'm going to be doing this funding 2.0 on November 9th in San Francisco. Awesome. So if the podcast goes live before then, I'll give you a link to that. I'll get it up this week then. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Really appreciate it. And thanks for just being a friend and being a great guy. Great. Thanks, Scott. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks. Bye.